Thank you very much, um, and thank you all for coming. I'm going to introduce you to the project that I've been working on now for about the last eight years, and then to finish with, I'll hand you over to Clara, who's going to tell you in a lot more detail specifically what she's going to be doing this summer as, as part of the work that she'll be doing with my project. So, um, I work at the uh, Wildlife Conservation Research Unit here in Oxford, but um, I'm predominantly involved with the Orangutan Tropical Peatland Project out in Indonesian Borneo. And I'm going to give you an introduction to the apes and the study site and where we're working. Um, I'll also talk about the threats. Obviously, it's very difficult to talk about conservation without mentioning the threats. And uh, I will spend a bit of time on them. And it may seem a very bleak picture that I'll paint. But what I want, want to then go on to do is give you some of the positive news from the work that we've been doing over the last 10 years and some of the ways that we are helping to mitigate these threats. Uh, I'll then also talk about the biodiversity monitoring and the conservation some of the education programs that we're running with local people and working for sustainable development, uh, the education that we're also doing for people outside of Indonesia, which is equally as important, and then I'll talk about the future, and then I will be handing over to Clara to finish the rest of the talk. So, first of all, quick introduction, orangutans, um, only found in Indonesia and Malaysia. They are polygynous. They'll, the females mate with lots of different males, they're mostly non-territorial, although they cover very big ranges. Only the males call. Um, they have this, unfortunately with science, we're not terribly good at coming up with really nice, easy names. So it's called this quadrupedal clambering, which basically means they use all their limbs most of the time. And they're frugivorous, they predominantly eat fruit. They are only found um, in two countries, in Malaysia and Indonesia, on the islands of Sumatra and the islands of Borneo. Quite often when you watch conservation programs on TV, you'll often hear a lot of numbers being um, mentioned about how many animals are left in the wild. It's very difficult to present numbers because it quite often gives the wrong impression. Um, although, based on the best knowledge we have at the moment, there's about 40,000 orangutans left on Sumatra and Borneo, but it is simply without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, the ones on Sumatra are certainly more endangered. It's believed maybe seven or 8,000 of them are, are, are remaining. Gibbons are apes, not monkeys. They are also apes, along with the orangutans, gib uh, chimpanzees, gorillas, bonobos, and indeed ourselves. They are... The monogamous thing is a little bit complicated. They're about as monogamous as humans, as in they'll generally stay with the same partner, but they may occasionally stray. They do frequently come back to the same one, though, so um, they actually have a lot more in common with us than, than people might think. They are very territorial. They will actively defend their territory against other gibbon groups um, and quite often defend it against any other animal, uh, whether it be bird, sun bear, other primates that come into their territory. They are predominantly uh, suspensory. They spend pretty much all their time swinging up in the trees. Their diet is very, very similar to that of the orangutan. And the thing that really distingu distinguishes them um, is this duetting behavior. It's the singing behavior that happens between an adult male and adult female within the group. And this confirms the bond that they have between them. It advertises where they are to other gibbons. And it's also meant to be, it's believed to be a way of uh, def defending their territory. Now, Clara's going to talk much more about the males later, but assuming the sound is working, this is what a female sounds like. Now, bear in mind, this generally goes off about half past four in the morning. <coughs> Yeah! <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's quite loud. That's just one female. Normally, if there's one singing, the rest of them are singing, and there can be 10 or 12 singing at the same time. It's quite loud. Gibbons um, are actually found in the most countries of any ape in the world. They, they, they're, they're found in more countries than any other ape, including all the, uh, the African apes. Um, they're found from um, Nepal, uh, sorry, not Nepal, Kashmir in, in, in India, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Laos, uh, southern China, all the way down to Java, uh, Sumatra, and then the Mentawi Islands, which are down here. <coughs> they are certainly much more numerous than, than the orangutans. There's 12 species, there's many, many more gibbons. However, they face exactly the same threats. And whilst there are more numbers of gibbons now, the fact is that they face the same threats and therefore numbers are declining. So, this is Borneo. Um, Google Earth is great, you get these wonderful pictures of it. And uh, you can actually see our, ba our base camp from space. Um, I don't know if Clara's seen this, but you can do it. And so this is where we're based, in the Indonesian province of central Kalimantan. Down here, this sort of green bit here is the uh, Sabangau forest where we work. And it's an area of about 5,300 square kilometres, or 53,000 uh, 53, hectares. And it is bordered pretty much all the way around the Sabangar River here, uh, Katingan River here, and then the Javan Sea uh, to the south. It's probably one of the largest contiguous peat swamp forest areas left, uh, certainly in Indonesia, if not left in Southeast Asia. But as with all forests, uh, including indeed uh, European forests, it is under threat. The most obvious one which I'm sure everyone knows about is of course the illegal logging, uh, the deforestation. One that is generally quite well known as well of course is the palm oil, the conversion of the uh, forest to this monoculture of single species palm oil. Actually, the palm oil is not the biggest threat to the Sabangau forest. Uh, it's peat soil, it's pretty acidic, which actually means there's no leeches, which in some cases is quite good. But it's so acidic that it's very difficult to grow anything other than tropical peat swamp forest on it. So actually what the biggest problem is, is drainage of the peat due to logging canals and then the resulting fires. In addition to the fires, which happen, unfortunately, with increasing frequency almost every two years, you get uh, these poles of smoke over pretty much the whole of southern Borneo that can last for maybe two or three months. And I do not exaggerate when I say you simply do not see the sky. This picture is taken about 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, and this is also 10 o'clock in the morning from exactly the same place. And here you can see about a kilometre and a half uh, to the forest edge. Here you can barely see 10 metres, and that the, the smoke is that bad. And of course then there's the illegal pet trade which is all threatening the forest as well and the biodiversity. Illegal logging in particular has caused a problem in, in the Savangau. As I said, what they do is they cut canals into the forest which then, then drains the peat. And as with any peat forest, uh, in certainly you know, in the north of Scotland, peat used to be cut. It makes fantastic fuel when it's dry and when it's dry, it burns. And so, the logging has a secondary problem with, with the fact that these canals have been cut into the forest. The palm oil is something that's getting an awful lot of publicity at the moment, and it's something that I will come back and talk about later. Whilst it's not, as, as I said, an immediate or the most pressing threat for Savangau, certainly palm oil can be grown on peat soil, even though it, uh, it's not 
the productivity level will not be quite as good. And so this is still something that we have to bear in mind. And certainly forests surrounding Sabangao that are not on peat soil are certainly affected by palm oil. And all sorts of numbers that you can find out off the internet. 25 million hectares of land has already been deforested and stands empty, which could potentially be used for planting palm oil to meet the demand, not only of Asia, but of the rest of the world and Europe. Uh, but it stands empty because palm oil companies predominantly prefer to come in and cut down standing forest because then they get a quick uh, revenue back from the timber whilst they're waiting for the palm oil to mature to then be harvested. Uh, production is largely fueled by demand outside of Indonesia and this is something I will also come back to. The fire is, we almost lost our base camp in 2006. Uh, we, last year in September we lost one of our sec our uh, secondary research sites where we've been looking at recovery of forest after various fire events. Fortunately, whilst we lost a, a motorbike, we haven't actually lost any human life yet, uh, but this is, this is a continuing and ongoing problem. The smoke causes all sorts of uh, health problems, uh, certainly for the animals. We've already proved this change in behaviour, and you simply can't breathe in this stuff for three months without getting some sort of health problem. So the, the human impact and then in addition the economic impact of people being unable to work in Indonesia is quite severe. This is, this is actually from 2006. So uh, here's our, our forest here, which as you can see the, the white bits are not burning and the red bits are burning, so mostly okay. Uh, this area here is the ex-mega rice project, which was it used to be tropical peat swamp forest, the same as, as Sabangau where we work. It was cleared in 97-98 with the belief that it would then become Indonesia's rice bowl. And so Indonesia would be totally self-sufficient in rice production and would no longer have to import from Malaysia. Uh, the environmental impact assessment was completely ignored because rice simply doesn't grow on, on acidic soil. And so this whole area has been deforested and burns uh, very, very badly pretty much every other year. And one of the very overriding things that we desperately want to do with uh, my project and, and our Indonesian sponsors is to make sure that this does not happen to the Sabango. I put this number up in most of my talks, but th this, this is an un I mean, nobody has any idea what a gigaton is. It's uh, the scientists, uh, the people that actually study carbon emissions and things actually know what that means. It's basically the amount of carbon released from these fires is equivalent to about 30% of uh, global carbon emissions, which is a much more kind of manageable number to get your <coughs> head around. And as I said, the smoke covers the country for two to three months every year. The airport's shut and uh, things don't quite come to a standstill, but uh, it certainly causes a lot of problems. These hotspots, uh, it's a fire that's been burning for more than 24 hours. And in 2006, just in our local area, in our one province, there were 43,000 hotspots. So 43,000 fires which had been burning for more than 24 hours. Peat burns very well. And of course, when you're where we are, is very deep peat. Um, the shallowest is three metres and the deepest is about 21. So that's a lot, a lot of, of fuel that can be burning. But, as I said, we have been working there for 10 years. Uh, We've been trying to develop a very integrated approach to this with uh, certain flagship species, but not simply looking at animal biodiversity, but looking at actually how to understand the forest, how we can help local people protect the forest, and how we can use science to implement positive change uh, uh, with this. And as with everything, we are foreigners working in Indonesia, and it's certainly a huge learning curve for us as well. 
So something we have discovered which has contributed to very slowly uh, this area becoming increasingly protected. It's the home to probably lar the largest population of Bornean gibbons and it's almost certainly the home to the largest population of uh, Bornean orangutans, about 7,000 individuals. It is flooded for about nine months of the year, which makes it a particularly amusing place to work in the wet season. And uh, I will show you pictures of just how flooded it can get later. Um, Clara, you will probably miss the wet season, but you might not. One of the things that we've discovered from, from the research that we've been doing um, has been what we've been calling the compression effect. Before any protected status was given to the, to the area, there were various different pro uh, things happening. Um, and so this, this is the kind of stylized map, and this is the Google Earth map of uh, camp. And this tiny, tiny splodge here is our base camp. So you can see it from space, but it's not, you know, it's not like most houses here where you can zoom in on your, on your back garden. But this, uh, this sort of pathway here is, is our main access route into the forest, like that. What we actually believe happened was that in the forest around the river, which is obviously the most accessible, there was pressure from logging. And then up here in the more pristine forest, there was pressure from fire. And what potentially happened was that the orangutans and probably indeed the gibbons all got compressed into this type of forest here, which is naturally low productivity. The soils, the peat is very shallow. Um, there's really not a lot there. And from that, we believe that about 30% of orangutans, the population crashed there was a very dramatic change in the population due to starvation because there simply were too many orangutans in this area to survive. We don't quite have the long similar long-term data for the gibbons, but um, it's very hard to believe that this did not have some impact on the gibbon population as well. However, the exciting thing from the last six years of what we've been doing is that these populations are increasing. We carry out uh, monthly and yearly surveys of populations of density of how many animals we estimate to be there based on uh, tested scientific methods. And um, as I said, we have longer term data for the orangutans. It's not a huge increase, but it is an increase. Uh, the gibbons are increasing slightly faster. They reproduce more quickly than the orangutans, which is probably why. But this, this is great. We want to make sure this continues. And, and this is, I mean, it doesn't look like much there, but the fact is that whatever we're doing is having a positive impact and these apes are recovering from, from this crash. So this is really exciting. The ape work that we're doing is, it's part of our sort of, it's, they're the flagship species. Everybody, most people know what an orangutan is. Some people know what gibbons are, um, even though they sing much better and it's much more exciting. But we would be remiss if we weren't looking at other parts of the habitat, if we weren't looking at other species. From the work that we've been doing, we, uh, we think we've got about 182 species of birds, about 55 species of mammals, nine species of primates, some of which are incredibly difficult to find, the ones, the nocturnal ones. Um, it's always the same thing. We had somebody out studying the lorises and tarsiers, the nocturnal primates, for three months. And I think she saw them maybe four or five times. And then after she left, we've been sighting them almost every, every six months, much, much, much more frequently. Um, so we text her every time this happens and then get abuse back because she's not very happy about it. We honestly don't know about the reptiles, amphibians and insects. There's a couple of projects that are going to be going on this summer, similar to what Clara's doing, looking at the amphibians. 
um, and we hope it's going to find something quite interesting. But it is, it is speculated that there's simply quite a lot of insects and amphibians that probably haven't been named, or if, if they have been named, certainly not described very well to science, that live in this forest. And the plants are all sorts of fun. Um, we are very, very careful with what we do when we observe the orangutans and gibbons to try and see what they're eating, because we want to know what they're eating because we want to know what they need at different times of year. And uh, we generally try and taste what they're eating, and some of it's just awful. But the amount of debate that goes on as to what these different things are, we'll bring samples back to camp, we'll try it, everybody gets into a big fight about it. Um, we try and send it off to the herbariums for help, and they just shrug their shoulders and say they've never seen it before. So there's an awful lot of stuff we just don't know about this place. One of the ways, certainly for the 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 animals that we thought about doing this was I wanted to find out if there were any clouded leopards in, in, in this area. Uh, Borneo doesn't have any major big predators. There are no tigers. Tigers are only in Sumatra and, well, used to be in Java. So the clouded leopard is the island's biggest predator. There aren't even any big dog predators like doles. So I wanted to see if we had them. Um, and actually I managed to get funding based on the one sighting, one possible sighting of a clouded leopard by one of my field assistants' dads, uh, but I don't tell my boss that very for, very often. However, we ended up finding an awful lot of stuff. We got these amazing pictures because most things run away from us. Despite our best efforts, we're quite noisy walking through the forest. We've got bearded pigs, a lot of bearded pigs. Uh, we've got bats turning up every so often. All sorts of things set these cameras off. We've got pigtailed macaques. Uh, I'm didn't actually put in a video. These guys fancy themselves as directors. We've got the cameras in uh, little wooden boxes and they tend to come along and of course they're curious so they're opening the doors and they're looking at the camera and then they grab it and they sort of turn it round and then eventually leave it facing the floor uh, which is not terribly helpful. We've got storm storks. Uh, we didn't actually know anything about this animal when we got the pictures and furiously looking through the guidebook and everything and it says uh, estimated to be about 300 individuals left in the whole world. And we just sort of went, okay. These guys keep coming back, which is quite exciting. So what we hope is the Sabangao is actually potentially a breeding area for, for these storm storks. We've got sun bears, lots of sun bears. Uh, Yellow-throated martens. Uh, the, the sheer number of little carnivores that we've got running around the forest is incredible. And then we've got a leopard cat. Now, We'd never had any pictures of these before, and this, of course, isn't a clouded leopard, but this was our first cat, and so lots of incredibly excited people bouncing around. And then we got this guy. This, was our, this is our picture of our first ever clouded leopard. It is a male. There's a, there's a, uh, cameras are always in pairs, and there's a, a second shot where, let's just say, it's incredibly obvious that this is a male animal, um, which is quite helpful. And then we started to get lots. This is my favourite, he really, you can sort of see, uh, I mean that's a very big powerful neck, big paws there and awfully big teeth. Uh, it's probably a good thing maybe some of us that haven't bumped into it because I'm not sure what I'd do. My camp manager Karen bumped into one a couple of weeks ago. She didn't tell me if she was terrified or um, if she just sort of ran away screaming. All she said was she was angry, she didn't have her camera. Uh, but yeah, 300 metres from our camp she bumped into one of these. They're, they're called the modern saber-tooth because of any cat, they've got the biggest sort of jaw-to-body ratio. So the amount of power in these things is 
incredible and I still don't know, I honestly couldn't tell you if I would want to meet one in the flesh. Um, so we've now got three males and one female that we can identify because these uh, spots and stripes after a lot, again, a lot of printing of pictures and fighting with each other about who is what and which animal it is. So some of the other stuff that we've been doing uh, apart from just getting the pictures, I mean, what does all, you know, all these pictures are fantastic, but what, what does it actually mean? We're looking at the forest flagship species. We want to understand the health and distribution, the behaviour, the resource requirements, the habitat use of these animals. What is it? Why do they need, why do they use certain areas at different times of year? For the apes, if we know what their food species are, we're better, we're able to, able to better inform, for example, the forestry department who have actually paid attention to our reports about what trees maybe shouldn't be getting logged because they're important, vital trees for these uh, orangutans and gibbons at certain times of year. Uh, we're also looking at parasite loads in the, uh, in the apes and orangutans. It's actually quite remarkable uh, quite how much conservation work involves looking at faecal samples and um, easier for orangutans because they tend to produce much more. So we want to look at the parasite loads because that is a proxy indication of health. We never have any physical contact with these animals at all. These are totally wild animals that we have been lucky enough to habituate who most of the time tolerate our presence. We also need to look at the overall ecology of the forest as is frequently, uh, as I'm frequently reminded by my ecology botany colleagues, uh, without trees none of these animals would exist. And I do have to admit that in some cases trees are much easier to study because you don't have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to go and find them and they don't move, unlike the apes and gibbons, sorry, the apes and, and, and everything else. So we need to look at how the forest is recovering, if it's recovering from all of these various disturbances and how perhaps we can help it recover. We also need to make sure that we're looking at various sites. I said the, the, the forest is sort of 5,300 square kilometres. It's a very, very big area. We have to make sure we're not focusing all of our efforts in one area because we can't simply extrapolate from one area to everything else and then say that these are the definite results. We have to make sure we look at different areas. We also need to make sure that what we're doing is helpful in terms of providing constructive feedback and potential management plans for uh, our Indonesian sponsors to then take on and perhaps uh, present to local and maybe national government. We need to make sure that our training methods are clear. Uh, very excitingly, our DVD on how to uh, survey given density methods has now been sent out to about 17 different organisations throughout Southeast Asia. This is a a DVD that's in Indonesian with English subtitles, a simple explanation of, of how to do this, this work. Helps to standardise methods, helps to make sure that everybody's kind of doing the same thing so we can compare our results. And we also want to increase awareness, so we've got a lot of programmes working with local people. This year we're in the process of making a, a, an introduction to the Orangutan Tropical Peatland DVD. And the hope is that is this will be taken around local villages with something called pedal power. The Great Ape Film Initiative have basically developed a system where you sit on a bicycle and pedal, this powers a projector and shows a film, which means you can take your work and DVDs and movies round to villages that have no electricity. And uh, I haven't done it myself, but I've been told actually you don't have to pedal that quickly and to get it to do, and it's quite a fun way of doing it. So we hope to bring these two methods together to get our message out to people. We're also investing in English classes, computer training for our Indonesian staff. 
to give them access to, to different types of training that they otherwise wouldn't have. And the outcomes that we've got of this is we are producing management plans for the area for different species. These have been presented at international and uh, national conference conferences in Indonesia and in Indonesian and are most of them are indeed translated into Indonesian <coughs> now. We've been helping deter illegal activities. The vast majority of our Indonesian staff were illegal loggers or hunters prior to joining us. And with their help and obviously their influence within local communities, we are slowly making an impact on, on people's illegal activities because we're helping to provide alternatives. And we're working very closely with local in, uh, NGOs. Something we strongly believe is that environmental education should be something that is carried out by the Indonesians or you know, the locals of whichever country. We provide the information, but it's actually the Indonesians who go out and carry out the environmental education work. And we've got very good uh, links with uh, a local NGO that's, that's carrying this stuff out. And as I said, Simtrop, our Indonesian sponsor, who's been uh, looking after us for pretty much the past 10 years, we are guests in the country. They are the ones who take our information, take it up to higher levels, who put things into the local paper, um, uh, who generally look after us when anything goes wrong. Uh, and then the NGOs who we also work with, Yechei, uh, which is the environmental education, and Kaloit, which is a given rehabilitation and rescue centre. They've got um, a radio station. It's the Radio 1 for Central, actually most of Kalimantan, the whole of Indonesian Borneo, and everybody listens to it. It's got support from most of Indonesia's biggest bands and biggest film stars, TV stars. And every, every hour there's about five messages of conservation. It's made such a huge difference in people's attitudes. Uh, the number of confiscated gibbons prior to the radio station, it was about 70% of gibbons had to be confiscated with the forestry police and 30% were voluntary donations. After the radio had been going for about seven, eight months, the ratio flipped and about 70% of people were voluntary don voluntarily donating their exotic wild animal pets rather than having the forestry police come in because the message was getting out there. And uh, we ourselves have been attempting to come forward into the sort of 21st century with this weblog. We don't have access to internet in the forest and up until about two years ago you could probably sit and drink about four pints before your web page loaded and tried to send an email so it made life very difficult. Now we have uh, quite excitingly speedy broadband which is sort of you know you could maybe have half a pint before your web page loads and so we can actually get photos videos and things up onto the website directly from Indonesia uh, to make our, our work more accessible because publishing scientific papers is all very well and good but you know most people they're very dry and they're a bit boring and you can't put pictures in them and so the having the blog has been an enormous help uh, and especially now, we're very excited that all of our Indonesian staff are now using the blog as well. Some of them still writing in Indonesian, but this is a, a really exciting step forward. So, some of the things that we're doing to help with local people, uh, we've got um, education stickers, as I said, we work with the radio. We're working with our local sponsors to do firefighting education and prevention um, and supporting the local fire team. We have t-shirts. It's 
we all tend to look like a cult when we walk around Palanca Raya because we're all wearing the same project T-shirts. But it does it does carry a message. People see us, especially um, it, it does become almost a status symbol to have one of these T-shirts and be involved with the project. Um, we talk to local people and have presentations and workshops um, and our, our family days, which we hope to continue again this year. We sponsor local sports events um, and obviously we provide employment. The One of the most hopefully the most successful um, initiatives to provide alternative employment for people is this, uh, this scheme called Buying Living Trees. Um, neither I nor my project can take credit for this. This is our Indonesian sponsor who came up with this idea. And basically, you provide local people with saplings of commercially valuable trees and saplings of forest trees that can be reused to regenerate the forest. And they plant these in a small garden plantation and they have to manage the trees. They can do whatever they want with the commercial trees. They can, you know, bananas, uh, the gelatone for tapping rubber, and they can sell these. However, for every forest species that they maintain in addition to their own trees, they get money per month. These trees can then either just stay where they are as a fire break or, um, you know, to hold the soil in place, or if they're slightly older, they can be used and transplanted into areas that require reforestation. And this so far seems to be quite a successful uh, program. We're not quite at the stage where we've grown full forest from this yet. It's only been going a couple of years, but it, the uptake has been has been very good. Also, if people are able to tap rubber and get non-timber forest products from their own garden, they have no reason to come into the Sabangau in order to take these products. All of this, hopefully, the more forest that there is there and the more people understand about how to manage fire, hopefully this is reducing the carbon output. The less fires you've got every year, there is a slash and burn culture, but if everything's tinder dry, even the basic simple slash and burn things go out of control and then it all becomes a big problem. Um, also reducing property damage to fires, because as I said, you've got a village where everybody is burning. Inevitably, there is, there is going to be property damage and houses and homes lost. Hopefully reducing fire is going to reduce long-term um, long health problems because you're not breathing in uh, all the smoke all the time. Reforesting the area for the future, the more forest you've got, especially now with the idea of carbon offsetting, the more forest that is there, increasing biodiversity, ensuring the soil isn't getting washed away and presenting, sorry, preventing desertification. And you're protecting biodiversity. Um, these guys probably actually shouldn't be sat on the boardwalk. They're supposed to be up in the trees all the time, but they seem to like the boardwalk, as do we, because it makes e access to the forest easier and providing employment and engaging local people. These are a bunch of high school kids uh, who came to camp to learn about what we were doing and uh, of course have their taken, picture taken with the foreigners. And then outside of Indonesia, so people always ask, and when I, I give these talks at schools, uh, especially when I did one before Christmas, a 10 year old very worryingly asked me if I, if I expected everybody to go back to living in a cave. I was quite adamant that I did not, and he's terribly relieved about all of this. Uh, I was sort of saying, you know, there are actually other things that we can do other than going back and living in a cave. Palm oil is a very major part of the Indonesian economy, um, and, and the Malaysian economy for that matter. Banning it simply isn't going to work. Uh, these countries are already in enough economic crisis without <coughs> banning their major part of their major economy. However, that doesn't mean that this palm oil cannot be sustainable sourced sustainably, which means no more clearing of pristine forests in order to create plantations, 
And it also means treating staff fairly because the palm oil is not simply a forest biodiversity wildlife issue, it's a human rights issue as well. Because quite often the staff are simply not treated fairly, they're not provided with basic working conditions and uh, very often forced to work away from their families and the families are not provided with schools or medical care. So palm oil in terms of whether you believe in wildlife conservation or simply poverty alleviation and human rights. Palm oil is something everybody should be taking an interest in. Uh, I'm at the, I mean, this is actually, this is a palm oil-free product, Scottish oatcakes. But um, there are, the idea is to actually eventually have the smiley orangutan showing a sustainable palm oil product because there are sustainable palm oil companies out there. And there is a, there is a precedent for consumer power. You would be very hard pressed nowadays to go and find a tin of tuna in this country that was not dolphin friendly because everybody, I don't actually remember when it happened, but when in the, um, the dolphin, sorry, the tuna fishing was shown to be terribly detrimental to dolphins, there was a huge outcry and it was the, pretty much the consumer power that forced first the fishermen and, and the companies to actually change their practices. So this can be done and it can be done with sustainable palm oil but it will take time. Getting MPs and MSPs to care as well, now very important because there's going to be election, an election very soon, is to actually get this um, onto the political agenda of the major parties that are likely to come back into power. Buying wood from sustainable sources with forest uh, FSC certification definitely, definitely helps, prevents the deforestation. And this is always a very tricky one, but when you're abroad, don't have pictures taken with wild animals. Um, it does encourage the trade. Of course, you are giving money to somebody who probably desperately needs it, but at the same time, you are encouraging the trade. It's much better, if you can, to report these things to uh, something like traffic, which, which regulates the trade in wild animals. So I hope that's given a kind of overview of, of some of the things we're trying to do. It's an awful lot that we're trying to do, and, and we need more people to come out and, and, and help do it and hopefully we're you know increasing our Indonesian team as well this year but the future the future of the Asian apes requires research and it requires something tangible then to happen on the ground uh, we're hoping that we are using good science that will actually then inform practices on the ground that will help make a difference we also have a commitment to all the local people who have been working for us. We're very fortunate that we've, we've got people that have been with us for the last six years. We do not have a high staff turnover. People who come to join us generally stay for a long time. We hope that we can continue to pro provide them with job security because if they have job security, as we know, they, um, the, the four, five of our Indonesian staff now who are married and have children, come up to us and say all the time they can't believe the, how happy they are they can afford to send their children to school because it's compulsory to go to school in Indonesia from nursery but it's also compulsory to pay for it. We have to maintain our commitment to the environmental education programs uh, to work with our local collaborators especially YCAE, the Indonesian run environmental education NGO in terms of finding funding the majority of funding comes from the English-speaking world and of course their English, whilst very good, is not at the level to write grants and that's where we come in to be able to help them with that. We also want to facilitate access to conservation training for Indonesian scientists and that's where working with scientists from abroad comes in. We've also got, as I said, we've got our staff taking training courses at the moment. 
uh, Wild Crew runs a diploma in international wildlife conservation and it's uh, my sincere hope that one of my staff will be joining that diploma course at Oxford next year. And also, of course, working with other projects. OUTROP is actually is relatively small. There's uh, sort of about 40 of us that, that work with it. Um, and then seasonally we have the, the volunteers coming out as well. But it's very important that we make sure that we collaborate with other, other organisations. And it's the training of the, the conservation of biologists of the future, both from, from abroad and, uh, and from Indonesia as well, is have it, helping this scientific collaboration, um, bring, bringing people together. The volunteers from all over the world uh, and working with our Indonesian staff and students from the local university have been vital in achieving many of our goals. And it's not just working together, um, you know, the title of the, the, the talk is Fun and Frolics. It's incredibly difficult, some of the work we do. It's quite a hard and demanding environment. If we didn't go out and have a, a laugh and do crazy things, we, well, we'd go even more crazy. So uh, there's the markets, everyone goes on a trip down to another national park that was set up by Baruta Galdikas, sorry, the field site that was set up by Baruta Galdikas who pioneered some of the orangutan research in the 60s. Uh, fancy dress parties, that's always fun because the concept of fancy dress doesn't really exist in Indonesia and, and, and we, it's amazing what people can come up with. You have absolutely nothing, no fancy dress shops and people come up with better costumes than you could possibly do whilst you're here. Um, Oh yes, um, our little our little train that we use to get into the jungle is, is always quite a good experience for everybody. It's sort of like the train in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when it sort of run goes through the mine and yes, perfectly safe though. Uh, playing chess, we've actually discovered that psychological wealth well-being is as, as, as important. We've invested money in a semi-permanent badminton court and recently last year a table tennis table. And it's, yes, so far the Westerners are not very good at any of this compared to the Indonesians and regularly get beaten. So we're still hoping for the day where one of us will actually beat one of the Indonesians. As I said, the work is hard. Um, that's sort of, I mean, that's water pretty much up to kind of here. Uh, that's me not actually in a hole. If you fall in a hole, you can be in water up to here. Uh, and there's nothing worse than going out at 4.30 in the morning and then getting wet underwear and having to be out for the next seven hours in that. It, it, it gets quite interesting, especially when you're looking up in the trees and the gibbons are swinging away quite happily uh, and you keep falling in holes and you're slogging through the forest and, and just not quite getting anywhere. But it's interesting. Apparently it's quite good for the skin, this, uh, this water. So volunteers have been very important to our project. There's no incredibly important. Because of their work it's helped discover that we've probably got the largest population of orangutans and one of the largest population of gibbons. We've got, had continuous uh, biodiversity and ecological monitoring going on for 10 years which wouldn't have been possible without all of these these extra people coming in and bringing their their help and their enthusiasm and helping contribute to our body of knowledge. It's brought the area to the world's attention as one of the most important um, repositories of carbon for the red, the reduced emissions through de degradation and deforestation, which is hopefully going to go some way to helping with carbon credits and offsetting carbon uh, and perhaps aiding the Indonesian government and conservation of the area. It helped gain national park status for the area in 2004 and certainly helped to develop conservation programs. Uh, sorry, to develop programs to support conservation for the rest of Sabangau. Vo our volunteers have um, 
gone on to do a whole variety of jobs in conservation. Not everybody, but uh, it's certainly, I think everybody's had a very good time. Core research team of about 30 Indonesians and 10 UK researchers. We've had over 170 volunteers, not including this year, from 21 different countries who have done a variety of undergraduate projects, and even if they haven't done a project, have been absolutely essential to the uh, continuing ongoing success of what we do and working with all of the Indonesians. The Indonesians like having uh, volunteers coming out. They get to meet different people, um, get to learn new languages, uh, get, to teach get, to get to teach the volunteers bad, wrong Indonesian, and then laugh when people go and ask for it, go into the kitchen to ask for a cup of coffee and ask for a mouse. It's apparently very amusing. So that's the project um, in a nutshell. Some of our successes, um, most of our successes, it's it's by no means uh, an ongoing job. Uh, I feel in conservation we, we work to put ourselves out of a job. If there wasn't deforestation, if there wasn't loss of biodiversity, there wouldn't be a need for me to do what I'm doing. Um, but I think it's something that's certainly not going to change within my lifetime. So we're slowly working to put myself out of a job. So I'm now going to hand you over to Clara to uh, conclude and to explain in more detail specifically what she's going to be doing um, as part of her project to contribute to the overall knowledge of uh, and conservation of the work that we're doing out in Savannah. Hello, my name is Clara Wanellick. I'm a second year biology student at Oxford University and I'm also very interested in primates. This summer I'll have the amazing opportunity to travel to Indonesia and to study the song of the male gibbon for my final honour school dissertation. Believe it or not, gibbons do actually sing, and they're quite famous for it. Their song is behaviourally very important, especially in territorial defence, pair bonding, and ultimately gibbon group maintenance. Here's a video of an adult male gibbon called Captain Calloway singing. This is exactly what I'm interested in. The gibbon species that I will be studying is called the Bornean Southern Gibbon, and its Latin name is Hylobatus albibarbus. While I conduct my research, I'll be based at the Orangutan Tropical Peatland Project in the Sabangal Forest of central Kalimantan, Indonesia. I'll be there for 10 weeks with a group of researchers and volunteers, including Dr. Chain. This will be my first time in Indonesia and my first time seeing a tropical rainforest, so I'm sure it will be a real scientific adventure. Interestingly, although some research has been done on the female given song, very little is known about the male song. I plan to change this. I have decided to investigate which specific acoustic features of the song con contribute most to the individuality. The field work will mainly consist of walking through the forest in the early morning, recording the male song using a little handy recorder, like this. I will have to get up before dawn because the gibbons start to sing as early as 5 o'clock in the morning. This doesn't sound like much fun, I know, but I'm pretty sure once I step out of my hut and into the forest and hear the enchanting song of the gibbons, I'll forget all about being tired and grumpy. The song recordings will then be analysed using special sound software 
This will allow sonograms to be generated from the data and specific variables to be statistically tested for individuality. A sonogram is a visual representation of the sound recording and usually looks something like this. So a typical day for me in the Indonesian rainforest will go something like this. I'll wake up at four o'clock in the morning, inject coffee, get my packed rice breakfast and head out. It'll, it'll still be dark in the forest and the clouded leopards that Dr. Chain mentioned earlier will still be active. I should arrive at my location for the day by five o'clock in the morning and I will remain there until nine o'clock, listening to the gibbons and making recordings. Once I finish collecting my data, I'll return to camp and catch up on some sleep. Lunch will then follow, rice again, and then I will start to analyse my data and help with other OUTROP projects. The evening will be, will be filled with more rice, fun and games, Dr Chain tells me. Bedtime will be very early too, maybe nine o'clock. I'm very much looking forward to experiencing the in Indonesian culture and working with Indonesians. I'll even try my best to learn some Indonesian. One thing's for sure though, I'll think, I think I'll be sick of rice after eating it three times a day for ten weeks. By conducting this research, I hope to advance our understanding of Gibbon Song, which is still a bit of a mystery really. I'm also hoping to identify specific acoustic features of the Gibbon Song, which will enable people to identify individual male gibbons simply by listening to them. This could, for example, help with tracking and surveying of the gibbons in the future, both very important aspects of their conservation in the wild. This is particularly important for the Bornean Southern Gibbon because it is, cl it is classed as endangered on the IUCN Red List. I am currently doing a module on conservation as part of my university course and I'm enjoying it very much. The project will give me some real hands-on experience and train me as a conservation biologist. Who knows, I might fall in love with the whole idea and become a field researcher myself one day, just like Dr. Chain. The total cost of the project will be about £3,500, including travel, fees, equipment, med medical supplies and insurance. Fees including bulk living costs, wages for an Indonesian field assistant and contribution to help all the other projects Dr. Chain mentioned. I'm currently in the process of fundraising and have applied for several grants. So far I have raised £1,850 but I'm still only about halfway. Any support from you would be greatly appreciated and we will be walking around with donation buckets after the event. Also, the £3 that you paid for your ticket doesn't actually go towards my project. I personally think that gibbons are truly fascinating creatures and their song is particularly mysterious. It will be such a privilege to see and study them in the wild. I'm very excited about doing this research and I hope I've got you excited about it too. But it won't be possible if I don't raise enough money, so please give generously. I'll also be keeping a blog while I'm in Indonesia with the gibbons, which I'll be updating regularly with diary entries and photos. A link will be going up on the Science Oxford website very soon, so please watch this space. Finally, Dr. Chain and I will be around after the talk to answer any questions you might have. Thank you for listening. <laughs>